Coming up on Stu Does America, the one, the only Michael Knowles joins us for an extended interview to discuss his book, Speechless. AOC prepares to put it all on the line for her idiotic progressive ideals, who I hope she does. And we all know about Joe Biden's nasty little lying problem. But today was absolutely on another level. We have the video proof for you. So let's do Biden's military lies. Stu does America. Every once in a while, you run into someone who tells you the truth. It feels sort of rare, but you don't have to worry about that awkward moment if you're talking to President Joe Biden, because he never tells you the truth. Every single day, he comes out and tells you lie after lie after lie, whatever serves him at that particular moment. We had a situation, of course, where the Afghanistan uh, war, uh, the war in Afghanistan kind of came to this awful little conclusion, and people were like, hey, what happened to that guy who said he was going to bring normalcy back to the country? Is he still president? Do we have a president? That was the question being asked. So, obviously, eventually, over a long period of time, we got Joe Biden to come out from outside of the basement to give an interview to George Stephanopoulos about the catastrophe. Because as we said on this program, and as many others did, why wouldn't we keep some troops there to make sure this evacuation goes okay and to hold the cities for the Afghan government, assist them in that mission so that we don't have a catastrophe on our hands. Well, George Stephanopoulos asked specifically about this, whether he got the advice from the military and whether he listened to it. Watch. So no one, no one told your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me. No, no one said it to him. Hmm. Well, the no ones who said it to him were unfortunately at a congressional hearing today. And the Senate was going after this particular question pretty hard. Tom Cotton had a long uh, exchange with the generals about the advice they gave to the president. Watch. General Milley, it's your testimony that you recommended 2,500 troops uh, approximately stay in Afghanistan? Um, as I've said many times before this committee and other committees, I don't share my personal recommendations to the president, but I can tell you my personal opinion and my assessment if that's what you want. Sure. Yes, please. Sounds great. Um, yes, my assessment was uh, back in the fall of 20, and it remained consistent throughout, that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2,500, and it could bounce up to 3,500, maybe something like that, huh. uh, in order to move toward a negotiated, gated solution. Hmm. Did, you present, did you ever present that assessment personally to President Biden? I don't discuss exactly what uh, my conversations are with the sitting president in the Oval <laughs> Office, but I can tell you what my personal opinion was, and I'm okay. always candid. General McKenzie, do you share that assessment? Senator, I do share that assessment. Um, did you ever present that opinion personally to President Biden? Again, I'm not going to be able to comment on uh, those executive discussions. Did General Miller ever present that opinion personally to President Biden? I think it would be best to ask him. I believe that his opinion was well heard. Uh, Secretary Austin. Uh, President Biden last month in an interview with George Stephanopoulos said that no military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence in Afghanistan. Is that true? Uh, Senator Cotton, I, uh, I believe that, uh, well, first of all, I, I know the president to be an honest and forthright man. Oh, good. 
Uh, and just, secondly, just, it's a simple question, Secretary Austin. He said no senior military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence behind. Is that true or not? Did these officer and General Miller's recommendations get to the president personally? Their input was uh, was received by the president and considered by the president uh, okay. for sure. Uh, in terms of what they specifically recommended, Senator, they just as they just said. Uh, they, they're not going to provide uh, what they recommended in confidence. Okay, so you got the, the concept here. They can't say specifically what they said to Joe Biden, but they can tell you what they believe to be the proper way to go forward, which was, as we talked about, as we thought was the right way to go forward, a few thousand troops remain there to keep this transition somewhat calm and non-catastrophic. Now, I would let you read into this just a little bit because uh, you'd wonder if that was their personal opinion, why they would give a different story to Joe Biden, right? Like if that's, they're telling you at that time and currently what they think should have been done and they told you that they gave their advice to the president, they just can't tell you exactly what it was. Well, if it was anything other than what they believed, that would be a big problem. They're just getting around with semantics here, uh, trying to tell everybody, yes, we begged, we pleaded, we said, don't let this happen. And Joe Biden ignored us a little bit further. Not only did they say they wanted a few thousand troops in there, they predicted exactly what would happen if they didn't leave those troops in here. Here is uh, General McKenzie. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. And I also recommended earlier in the fall of 2020 that we maintain 4,500 at that time. Those are my personal views. I also have a view that the withdrawal of those forces would lead inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. <laughs> Where have we heard that story before? It's almost like exactly what happened. Think about this for a second. Think of how many times over our history we've heard this back and forth between civilians like, you know, the, uh, a lot of times it's been a Republican president and the military. And we hear over and over again, listen to the military advisors. Don't just go out there and come up with political solutions uh, because that's going to turn into a catastrophe. And over and over again, we hear accusations that politicians think about themselves and their own little uh, campaign promise or whatever it is and don't listen to the advisors. Now, the last president we had, President Trump, ran into this situation at least twice that we know of. In 2016, he ran as a guy to get us out of Afghanistan, partially. Uh, when that came up, uh, he talked to his military officials. They said, if this happens, it's going to be a catastrophe. Do you really want that to happen? And Donald Trump changed his position. He reacted to what was actually going on and changed his position and did not pull troops out there, changed the strategy. Uh, as we saw, we went through 18 months without a, a, a casualty. He decided he did want to go ahead with the uh, withdrawal again. And as is discussed in this congressional hearing, uh, recommended a January 15th uh, pullout. Again, he was told that would be a catastrophe. And again, he said, OK, well, then don't do it. So he reacted to the situation on the ground. President Biden listened to those military experts, told him it was going to be a catastrophe and then did it anyway. And in the middle of all that lied to your face, or at least if you're George Stephanopoulos and you're watching, he lied to your face, but he lied to all of our faces by saying no one ever told him about this. He was totally blindsided. 
Well, I will tell you, it's not just us noticing this. Politico, top generals contradict Biden. They say urge him not to withdraw from Afghanistan. General Milley warned Biden of looming disaster in Afghanistan. The president didn't listen. In striking candor from a top presidential advisor, General Mark Milley told senators the withdrawal was a logistical success, but a strategic failure. That's USA Today. NBC News contradicting Biden. Top generals say they recommended a small force stay in Afghanistan. And I'll give you this one. If you don't believe any of these people, you might be sitting there saying, well, wait a minute. They never confirmed. They told him personally. This is just news reporting. We don't believe the news. I will give you this one. This is from the Washington Examiner and Yahoo. White House confirms. Biden turned down general's advice to keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. They lied to you. They knew they were lying to you. They continued to lie to you until the generals came out and told the truth. And then they finally admitted it afterward. What you have here is an administration completely chock full of liars, constant, constant liars. And it's up to us whether we're going to accept that or not. I mean, it, at the very least, we have to push back as hard as we can and try to hold them accountable. Because if you let people like Biden get away with a, yet another one in his longtime career of lies, we we're going to have even bigger lies around the corner. Let me tell you about a funny little word, moink. What does moink mean? Moink could mean a bunch of different things, but this particular case, it means moink meats. Yes, moink meats, they deliver grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. Now, my family eats meat. I'm, I'm the grill master. I do, I do hit the grill quite a bit. And I've noticed lately, though, my wife has been taking the moink meat out of the fr uh, freezer, uh, where we have a little bit of it stashed, and uh, she's making up, like, you know, these, like, ridiculous steaks and all sorts of stuff. This is the best uh, meat from around the country, and it's all super fresh. It's delivered right to your home, and you can sign up at moinkbox.com slash stew. It's hard to say, but it's easy to order. Uh, get there and get a free year of bacon free. A year of bacon. What does that mean to you? A year of bacon free? And you can pick what meats you want to have delivered with your first box. It's an incredible deal. Uh, change what you get each month if you'd like, and you can cancel anytime. Join the Moink movement today by going to moinkbox.com slash stew. M-O-I-N-K-B-O-X dot com slash stew. Uh, free bacon for a year. One year of the best bacon you'll ever taste. Moinkbox.com slash stew. Thrilled to welcome Michael Knowles back to the program. He's the host of The Daily Wire's The Michael Knowles Show and the author of a great new book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. It's available now wherever you get your books. Uh, Michael, it's a bit more wordy than your last bestseller, but I would say even a better read. Well, thank you so much. I, I put, I would say, more research into the first book, but it took me uh, less time to write. And then this one, you know, I put a bit of research into, but much, much longer to write. That's true. I could, I could definitely tell. Uh, the book is great, and it, it goes kind of deep into uh, the language that we use in our political lives, which is really our entire lives, as you, as you kind of note. Um, and we talk, it's a lot about political correctness. And we've been complaining as conservatives about political correctness pretty much every day since I can remember being politically aware. 
But you make the case in the book that not only do we not really understand it, we definitely don't know how to push back against it. Can you walk us through this? Yes. Uh, so uh, we've been railing against PC since I was nothing but a glint in my father's eye. <laughs> and, uh, and actually even a little further before that. And there's this strange fact, which is no matter how long we fight against it, we seem only ever to lose ground. We haven't, mm. we haven't preserved anything. We, we haven't been able to conserve the women's bathroom. So clearly, uh, political correctness has won. In fact, in some cases, it seems the harder we fight, the more ground we lose. Why is this? I went and I said, okay, the way to answer this question is to trace the history of political correctness. I think it goes back further than the 90s or the 80s or the 70s even or the 60s even. It's where a lot of people would trace it to. I think it goes back to the 1920s. I think it goes back to a lot of cultural thinkers, very brilliant theorists in the Marxist tradition, people like Antonio Gramsci, founder of the Italian Communist Party, people like the critical theorists at the Frankfurt School who uh, came back again. Herbert Marcuse was one of them. He was the father of the new left. You see it through the movements of, uh, say, second wave feminism. You see it through a lot of those academic movements, the campus was really one of the, the incubators of political correctness. And then you see it really explode in the 80s and the 90s as a, a, a kind of a culmination of this long process. But, but what is it? What is it? I think for a lot of conservatives, we have believed that political correctness is a battle between free speech on the one hand and censorship on the other. But I don't think it's really that. I think actually political correctness aims at upending traditional standards in society. This is what the people who developed it said it's about, and this has been what the effect of it is. And, and so what I really think the battle is, is a battle between competing sets of standards. Uh, you know, every society, every, every free speech regime in history has had some things that are taboo and some things that are within bounds. And that, that's been especially true in the United States, but it's been true everywhere. And so what, what the left brilliantly did was they just shifted all of the standards, all of the taboos. And uh, they persuaded conservatives to believe that, that the, uh, our recourse here, our, our answer should be uh, to uh, defend free speech absolutism to get rid of standards entirely. But if we do that, we're actually only furthering the purpose of political correctness, which seeks to destroy those traditional standards. So I, I think what, what we need to recognize is all cultures have standards, all cultures cancel. And uh, the, the difference is what the culture cancels. In the 50s, you would be canceled for being a communist. Today, you get canceled for not being a communist. <laughs> and so I think it was better the first way around. And, and conservatives need to be are able to articulate a, re a real substantive vision for politics because nature abhors a vacuum. And if we don't, we're just going to end up following the, the new woke speech codes. Yeah, well, one of the ways you illustrate this in the book, which I thought was really interesting, is the concept of Steven Pinker's euphemism treadmill. And it, it's something I think is I've always thought of it as a pretty smart observation. Um, can you explain what it is and why it might be giving us a, a false sense of security? Yes. So the, the euphemism treadmill is a great, great observation by Steven Pinker, who's a Harvard professor. And he notices that the, the words that we're allowed to say to refer to some topic, let's say it's a mental disability, they, they always change. So you get uh, the, the word simpleton. Hmm. Uh, then you get the word uh, idiot. Then you get the word moron. Then you get the word retarded. Then you get the word handy, mentally handicapped or handicapable, or I don't even know what the, what the new <laughs> term is. But it's always going to 
change. And the reason is that uh, we, we change the term because the, the old term is deemed offensive. But then because the, the condition that the term is describing is uh, not desirable, you know, it's a deficiency, uh, then the new term is, is uh, colored by that reality. You know, the, the reality seeps through again. And so that is considered offensive. And so you've got to keep changing the term. And so the the, the hope, hopefulness that lies beneath this is the idea that reality will reassert itself, that you can't, you can't just lie about reality forever. You can't redefine the whole world, uh, uh, you know, by, by redefining all of the terms. However, I think, I think we're, uh, we would be mistaken to put too much faith in that. And wh- one example of this would be the great success of the gay rights movement. Regardless of what you think about the gay rights movement or even redefining marriage or any of the effects of that, the transgender ideology even, just look at how incredibly effective the wordsmiths have been at changing, uh, I don't know, the word sodomite <laughs> to gay or, you know, prideful or something. I mean, this is one really <laughs> evokes uh, fire and brimstone and the other evokes sunshine and rainbows and happiness and love is love in the equal sign. And so if there are uh, darker aspects to some sorts of sexual confusion, maybe those will peek through. But, but I think that the, the effectiveness of that rebranding strategy is going to have a pretty long lasting result. And I, I don't mean just to harp on you know, this one example in the sexual revolution. There are so many other examples as well. So I think it's, it's important for us to, to, to be very careful about the words that we use. You know, a, a lot of conservatives will say, who cares about the pronouns? You know, who cares if I call Bruce Jenner, he, Bruce, a man, or, or if I call him Caitlin, her, a woman? Well, you know, who cares? What's the big deal? Uh, my answer is the left cares. The left is putting a lot of time and energy and money into getting us all to use the, these new false words to refer to people. And the reason is they know that words carry whole premises. They, they can actually win a debate for the left before the debate even begins. Yeah, you mentioned that when you went through um, the terms homeless, unhoused, bum, and tramp. And, and you'd think of like, okay, bum and tramp, that's a derogatory terms. We don't use those anymore. Homeless, now that's, we've gone through the, the euphemistic tre- treadmill there and turned that into unhoused. But your point there is that th- there's, a, there's an attachment here, right? These terms don't just mean the same thing. There's a, a sort of a subtle judgment to them, not in every case, but in some cases. And that judgment is a cultural judgment, which is important. Right. A, a bum bears some responsibility for his condition. The unhoused is a, a passive, a parti- not even a participant. He's a passive character in things that are happening to him. There, there is a, a, you, you see this actually with addiction. You know, a drunkard bears some responsibility for his condition. Then an alcoholic, you might say, bears less responsibility for his condition. And then I think the new term is a person uh, suffering from an addiction or a person with an addiction or something bear, bears even less responsibility. And so I'm not advocating that we be really harsh and cruel to people or anything like that. But but we need to recognize this is part of a broader political program to deny that people have any agency whatsoever and uh, that we're, you know, that free will itself perhaps does not even exist. My, my favorite one along this line, by the way, is, uh, well, probably the most obvious is the difference between an illegal alien and an undocumented mm. American. You know, an illegal alien has no right to be here. An undocumented American, why? He's just an American, it's like a you and me. Paperwork, print, that's all. That's right. Yeah. Print that guy up some documents. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, but my favorite one is uh, 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 justice-involved person. 
This is a popular term in legal and academic circles, and it refers, what would you think, to a judge, to a lawyer, uh, to a, a police officer involved? No, it refers to a criminal. That's a, which is the least justice involved person I've ever met. And so it's, it's important to note here, we all use euphemisms. You know, I call a, a woman, a lady of a certain age instead of an old hag because I want to be polite. Mm-hmm. But my euphemism does not contradict the reality. She really is a woman of a certain age. Uh, what the left does is they use euphemisms to invert the reality. You know, the criminal becomes a justice involved person. The foreigner becomes an undocumented American. Well, that is a way to, to try to redefine the whole world, not by changing the reality, but by, by just by changing the words. Yeah, I, you have another, um, uh, another example of this in the book that I think tells the same story, is the story of academic freedom, um, intellectual diversity, right? These are terms that feel positive, right? Like I, I, I hear that, and of course I want academic freedom. I don't, I don't want people controlled what they can learn and what they can't learn, but this is another step down a similar road, isn't it? The problem with academic freedom is that it's never existed anywhere. <laughs> and and we, we used to know that. And I go through in the book a little bit the history of academic freedom as a concept going back to the 16th century, and it really didn't work out. And then it, they tried to resurrect it a little bit in the 19th, and it, didn't, it really didn't work out. And even in the 20th century, the most liberal university professors were uh, put out in their statement on academic freedom. They said this is not to suggest that professors have the right to teach whatever they want in the classroom. That's completely insane. And I go through that document as well. But, but you know, I, I know that now a lot of conservatives will defend academic freedom and intellectual diversity and things like that. But I think we should remember that the modern conservative movement was launched uh, in the 1950s when William F. Buckley Jr. published a, a very famous book called God and Man at Yale, the subtitle of which was The Superstitions of Quote-Unquote Academic Freedom. In that book, he made fun of the concept of academic freedom. He called it a hoax. He said that, uh, yes, of course, a professor can pursue any research interest he wants on his own time, but he doesn't have the right to indoctrinate our children into atheism and communism. <laughs> we, as uh, parents, as trustees, as citizens, have, have some right over education. You know, and Now we're, we're told that if we don't want uh, children teaching our kids this radical critical race theory or gender theory in a third grade classroom, that's an affront to academic freedom as if a third grade classroom were some freewheeling marketplace of ideas where they're going to solve the Riemann hypothesis or something. <laughs> Completely insane. Yet a third grade classroom is an indoctrination center where you, you have to teach kids certain things. You know, you have to teach them that two plus two equals four if you want them to be able to think about for themselves about higher things, higher in mathematics or elsewhere. And, and I, I think we need to become a little more comfortable on the right with the word no, we're not going to allow critical race theory. No, we're not going to allow a radical gender theory. We're going to teach things that are true. And we can know that because we have faculties of reason. And there is an objective reality, no matter what the wordsmiths want to say. Mm. Yeah, I, I want to I get into uh, how conservatives are tr- attempting to deal with this or failing uh, to deal with this. Uh, you write in Speechless, uh, neither conservatives nor leftists in the 21st century meet the definition of fascism, which is an ideology unto itself. Yet the left flings the term at the right, and the right foolishly hurls it back at the left, accepting fascism as the ultimate political, political evil, the very premise leftists sought to establish in the first place. Both sides excitedly condemned fascism a phantom villain that died with Mussolini on the streets of Milan, while the extant evil of Marxian socialism openly embraced by the left's most influential activist groups and vast swaths of the Democratic Party gets off the hook and spreads. 
we often adopt opposition language. They call us racism, we, racist. We find an example of them and we say, oh, yeah, well, you're racist. Does that actually work? No, it, it, it doesn't. We do it because it seems simple and easy and because their hypocrisy is so glaring. And we, we count it a victory when we can accuse them of being fascists or something like that. But it's a Pyrrhic victory because we've given them the premise that the, the greatest evil in all of politics is fascism. It's not. Communism's pretty bad. Anarchism is pretty bad. You, you saw this especially with Antifa, because Antifa, as short allegedly for anti-fascist, would go out into the streets and use violence against civilians to achieve political ends. That's what the fascists did. They even wore black costumes, which the fascists did. So you say, they're not anti-fascists, they're actually fascists. But actually, they're not fascists. If you ask them, you say, are you a fascist? They would say, no, I'm a communist. No, I'm an anarchist. And, uh, and you, can, you can see this at any college campus today. If you go to any college campus in America, other than maybe Hillsdale or a few other places, right. you will find students wearing a t-shirt of Che Guevara, a communist revolutionary, a murderer, a thug, a very evil man. You might find students wearing a t-shirt of Chairman Mao, a communist murderous tyrant. You might see them even wearing a shirt of Stalin, depending on what sort of tankies you'll get at the, at the universities. That's all uh, perfectly tolerated. In some ways, it's even encouraged. If anybody wore a t-shirt of Mussolini or Hitler, could you imagine, they, they would not only be expelled, they, they would be shunned and ostracized from society. But what makes Joseph Stalin any more acceptable than Benito Mussolini? Well, the difference is that we've accepted that communism and anarchism, socialism and other leftist evil ideologies are perfectly acceptable. And the only bad ones are on the far right. Mm, it's, it's, it's amazing the way that this continues to happen. It's almost like there's a plan behind it. We'll get into that in a little bit here with Michael Knowles. The book is Speechless. Don't miss it. Back with more in a second. Do you like to eat? Yes, you probably do. Do you like to eat chocolate, though? Mm, probably do. Do you like to eat candy bars? Yeah, you probably do. Uh, but if you have some level of intelligence, you probably realize that, you know, a certain amount of candy bars turns you into, you know, I mean, can turn you into Jeffy. I mean, that's an extreme example. But it's, it's sure that's an outlier possibility, but it's possible. Not if you have Built, though. Built.com. Built.com is the place to go to get delicious um, protein bars that taste like candy bars. They're delicious candy bars uh, that have a little protein. This is what I like to say. They're, they're great candy bars, but they're low in calories, but they're low in, uh, in um, uh, carbs. They're high in fiber. They're high in protein. They've got the coconut, the mint brownie, the double chocolate, the salted caramel. The cookies and cream. I just saw one. It was like a chocolate chip cookie dough. Looks amazing. Um, you got to try these out. Built.com. Have a good, delicious, chocolatey snack, a, cho a chocolate bar. You'd have one every day. No problem. My wife is actually in good shape. She eats them every single day. Built.com. Promo code is Stu15. Save 15% off your first order. Use the promo code Stu15 for 15% off at Built.com. It's Built.com. We're back with Daily Wire's Michael Knowles discussing his new book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. This is from the book. Conservatives have mustered two responses to political correctness, both of which have only accelerated the progress of the radicals campaign. The most conciliatory conservatives have simply gone along, ceding one piece of the culture after another to political correctness. The more curmudgeonly brethren have refused to abide by political correctness, but nonetheless have effectively tolerated 
it on broadly liberal grounds. Free speech absolutists have refused to acknowledge that liberty entails limits. You talk about free speech absolutists often in the book, uh, in the concept around them. And I felt a little seen at times, uh, I, I feel, as I was reading it. Um, and I realize you've convinced me that I use the term colloquially because I, I you're right. Every every society has to have guardrails around it or it's not really a society. The question is, how do we judge uh, where the government steps in to put guardrails around it? Or is this just mostly a cultural thing? I'm going to give the answer that Antonin Scalia gave when I was a student and some of us asked him, how do you ascertain the limits of the Second Amendment and the role of story decisis and precedent? And how do we do that? And his answer was very carefully. <laughs> I think we ought to do it very carefully. And people thought he was evading the question, but I think it's actually a sophisticated answer because I think it would be a big mistake to write out a five bullet point manifesto plan on the back of a napkin. That's what the radicals want to convince us to do. That's what the ideologues want to convince us to do. I think what we ought to do is use our prudence. Look back toward American history where whole swaths of speech have been off limits, where whole sorts of standards have been upheld and say what worked, what led to a flourishing society. I think we should use our faculties of reason. I think we should use our moral conscience and say, what, what do we know is right or wrong? You know, a lot of this debate over free speech absolutism gets down to this question, who decides? And, and my answer, and I think the traditional American answer is, largely we do, we the people do, and we have a self-government. And you, you saw this in, in particular with a point made by David French uh, a few years ago. He was uh, in a debate with Sorab Amari, who is uh, another conservative and more traditionalist conservative. And uh, David said that uh, Drag Queen Story Hour is, quote, one of the blessings of liberty. And I, you know, James Madison rolls over in his grave when he hears that, <laughs> that suggestion. But I want to be as fair as I can to David's argument, because I think a lot of conservatives have held this view. David's point, I think, is that if we tell perverts that they can't twerk for little kids in the public library, well, then the left will tell us that we can't go to church on Sunday. And uh, so that's why we've got to remain totally neutral. Now, there's a practical problem here, which is the left is already telling us we can't go to church on Sunday, and they spent much of the last year telling us that. <laughs> uh, but two, even from the broader philosophical point, if we really cannot distinguish between uh, a pervert jiggling for a toddler and a pastor preaching the gospel, if we really can't say one of those is a little better <laughs> than the other one, then what we're saying is we don't have faculties of reason. We don't have moral conscience. And, uh, you know, that's fine, I guess, if that's what we're admitting. But then we have to admit that we're not able to govern ourselves because self-government relies on reason and moral conscience. When, when John Adams says that the Constitution is built for a moral and religious people and it's not fit for the government of anyone else, he's not being superstitious. He's not Bible thumping. Far from it. He's just making the observation that in order to govern each other, we need to have a, a moral perception of the world. We need to then deliberate and persuade one another, making moral arguments. And then we need to enact and enforce moral laws. It's sometimes said that you can't legislate morality, but that's preposterous. All laws legislate morality. Whether you're talking about the death penalty or you're talking about parking tickets, you're making moral arguments. You're saying you should do this, you shouldn't do that, and we're going to use the weight of the law to, to enforce that vision of the world. And so the left does that. The left, uh, contrary to all of their liberal, tolerant claptrap, 
they actually do put forward that positive vision. And the right used to do that until very, very recently. And then I think we've just been duped. I think we've fallen for this trap of political correctness. And we need to offer people uh, a substantive moral vision, because if we don't, then, uh, then there is no other option but for the left to run the country. I've always thought, Michael, that part of the brilliance of the founders was that they recognized their own fallibility. They realized that they weren't necessarily going to be like a king would be a fine. A monarchy is a fine system. If the king puts every rule in, that's perfect and is able to apply it equally and fairly to everyone. It's a great system, I guess. But, you know, the founders recognize that that's not what happens. Right. In reality, that that power should be with the people to make as many decisions as possible. Um, They gave really wide guardrails. That's why freedom exists here, right? Like we're able to move around and do work as we please. And what, you know, a lot of people work at jobs that might not improve uh, the common good, but they go, are able to pursue those careers because they want to. I mean, God, some of the music I hear these days, I'd love to make it illegal, uh, but unfortunately <laughs> that's, not, that's not under my power. Um, so how, what's the limiting principle of this when it applies particularly to the government? Because I think most conservatives would agree Culturally, we should argue for these things, but how are they applied through Washington, D.C.? Well, I I think we need to become true Democrats once again, lowercase d Democrats once again. I I sometimes think that uh, some of us on the right are the only real Democrats left in America Mm. because we're not limiting the democratic principle merely to the people who happen to be walking about the earth right now. We also have a great deal of respect for the democracy of the dead in uh, the words of some wise writers, wiser than I am. We also have respect for the people who have come before us, who have, who have laid out a, a vision of society and who have given us not just abstract pie in the sky principles, but, but uh, real practices here. I, I was recently on a panel in Washington, DC, and the debate was over whether or not the American founding principles are sufficient to our political order. And I thought, uh, of course they're not sufficient no knock on the founders, no principles are sufficient. Uh, good luck divining what all of the intentions of all of the founders were as though we're, we've got some crystal ball and we have tea leaves. No, we can look at the practices here. Uh, and so a good example of this would be, what, what sort of speech do we want to limit? And I agree with you, there's a lot of music I would limit, but I am not a king <laughs> and I would, not, I would not force that on people. But how about obscenity? You know, Uh, From the very beginning of this country, we've had laws against obscenity. They've been broadly popular. They've been enacted for a very long time. Contrary to popular propaganda and in favor of what Justice Potter Stewart had to say, you generally do actually know it when you see it. (laughs) You actually can tell the difference between an ordinary film, even a risque film, even a French film, Mm. and hardcore pornography. And uh, in the 1990s, there were two anti-indecency laws that were passed. The Communications Decency Act, actually, which is in the news now because of big tech, and the Child Online Protection Act, they had widespread support. Republican House, Democrat Senate, Democrat President. They ended up getting gutted by some lunatic judges on the court, but they were radical activist judges. Uh, we, We imprisoned a pornographer for obscenity just a dozen years ago in this country. We sent him to jail for almost four years at the federal level. Uh, th- this is very much in keeping with with the American tradition. And so I'm, I'm not saying that we need to uh, silence political dissidents. Frankly, political dissidents are already being silenced and they're mostly on the right. And it's mostly happening by big technology, which is a little b- kind of blurring the distinction between government and the private sector. Uh, but I-, I think that we need to, if we could very modestly enforce some popular and sensible anti-indecency laws, 
I think that would go a long way toward restoring a, a more sensible speech regime on the right and in America. And it's not even because I'm totally concerned about porn itself. It's a big problem and people write in about it a lot, but, but it's, it's even beyond that, it would remind us we actually can tell the difference between good and wrong and, and, and uh, you know, true and false and, and these sorts of things. We actually do have judgment. We are capable of self-government. And uh, so I think we ought to do that cautiously, carefully, with great prudence. But we ought to do it. We ought to have the courage to do it, the, the moral vision to, uh, to actually pursue that. Because courage is not just one of the virtues, it's the prerequisite for all of the other virtues. I only have about a minute left before I know you have to go, Michael, and I, I, I appreciate you spending so much time here. Um, the, uh, walk me through, because most of the time book is spent on speech and how we can kind of, uh, we're basically you're advocating for a rise of a movement that takes things on a case-by-case -case basis and makes judgments and distinctions, which I think is a really healthy thing for a society. Um, the left, I think even you know, President Trump at, at some level would argue, look, these, the vaccines, for example, are a very good thing and they're really helping people and you should take your vaccine. Both, so both sides have made this argument. Um, but I, you know, there's the vaccine mandate argument. I would push back on the vaccine mandate argument saying, you know, hey, personal liberty, people should be able to make their own distinctions. But, you know, the, the left would certainly make the argument that the common good is served by people getting vaccinated and that's why we need these mandates. Well, how, does, how does all of this figure in to a, to a discussion like that? Well, I, I think it's a very good example of taking it beyond the realm of speech because when the left tells us that vaccine mandates are perfectly constitutional, they're right. It's true. When they tell us there's more than a hundred year history in, in America of authorizing vaccine mandates, they're right. That goes back to the 1905 Supreme Court case. Uh, George Washington forced inoculations against smallpox on his troops. Mm -hmm. So it goes back even further. But I think here's where the, the details are important because smallpox is a genuinely terrifying, vicious disease, one of the worst uh, epidemics that we've, we've ever faced in our civilization. Coronavirus, though dangerous for some, is not particularly dangerous for most people. Uh, and uh, most people are not particularly at risk. And the vaccine is apparently very good at protecting the people who receive the vaccines from hospitalization and death. So in this particular case, the arguments for using the, the hastily developed vaccine against the virus that doesn't pose a great danger to most people, when the vaccine is good at protecting the people who most need protection, it, well, it just seems to me that one does not make a very persuasive argument there. I know that, that, that my line of thinking here is not satisfying in some clean ideological way, but I think in a very practical way, it would help us work through these issues and restore in, in a little way, at least, our prudence. Uh, it's arguing for a return of, uh, of reason in some ways. Uh, Michael Knowles, the host of the Daily Wire's The Michael Knowles Show, author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Be sure to grab your copy today. Michael, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Stu. Thanks so much. Between Biden's monstrous infrastructure bill and Pelosi's reckless spending on stimulus checks and unemployment benefits, the Fed is printing trillions of dollars seemingly every single night. Uh, in fact, 40 percent of all U.S. dollars ever printed were created in the last year. We're already feeling this effect, of course. Inflation is rising at its fastest pace since 2008. Doesn't take a hedge fund guru to understand the economy is heading uh, and looking to, like a possible disaster is around the corner. Who knows what's ahead? 
Uh, so how are professional investors preparing for this nightmare scenario? Well, they've already prepared, right? They're, they've turned to something that you've heard of a million times, an under-the-radar asset class where prices have more than doubled S&P returns between 1995 and 2020. It's a real physical asset, not gold, not real estate, or anything related to crypto. It's actually fine art. You probably, you know, every, every rich person seems to have some, right? For the first time, uh, and now everyday investors can allocate toward this $6 trillion asset class. It's no longer exclusive to the ultra-wealthy, thanks to one revolutionary startup. More than 200,000 members have already signed up, and their waitlist continues to get bigger and bigger. But for you, luckily, they've hooked us up with a special link to skip that waiting list. Go to masterworks.io slash stew. Masterworks.io slash stew. Previous offers have sold out in hours, so don't wait around. Check it out. See uh, the important disclosures. Understand it. Do your own research and get the information. Masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Check it out. So have you come to that moment in your life that you believe the reality show yet? Because that's the plan here. We're supposed to have this drama. It's like when they're fixing up the home and the people who are the homeowners are almost back to the house. We have to rush to get this last window in. Oh no, they're pulling into the driveway. Put the last coat of paint on. Oh, there we go. We did it just in time. That is what you're in the middle of right now. The theater of this bill, we talked about it a lot yesterday. Uh, AOC is now threatening to vote down moderates bipartisan infrastructure deal unless she gets new information. Gee, could the new information be that she's just going to wind up doing it in the end anyway? Really? We're supposed to believe that this woman who was out there crying on the on the floor of the house uh, because she had to vote present. This is a woman who actually I mean, if she's dedicated to anything. It's making sure Jews can't protect themselves. So obviously that was a really important vote for her to vote down the Iron Dome funding. And she still went to present on that one. This is someone who's very politically aware, but beyond that, actually cares about spending your money for you. So of course she's got to come around to this bill at the last second. There's this fake drama going on where Joe Manchin's saying, I don't know, Ike, I want this bipartisan bill, it's a trillion, but I don't know, what about the extra uh, 2.5 or $3.5 trillion? I don't have a timeline on that one. And AOC is saying, well, I'm not going to vote for your $1 trillion bill unless you give me the other 3.5. Look, the bottom line is they're going to spend more than a trillion dollars total. They'll get the infrastructure bill likely, and then some secondary bill will come. As of right now, we don't know the result of this, but don't believe the hype. I would love to tell you that this thing's going to fall apart completely, but the theater is on. The drama is here. It's your choice as to whether you believe it. People around here tell me yeah, there's a football game uh, last night. Now, obviously, uh, as an American patriot, I don't pay attention to these NFL people who take a knee at the flag. I care more about the country than some dumb sport. That's why I've been boycotting the NFL. But some of these people around here are still watching it. Uh, if you happen to be one of those people, you can get this mug. It's a Colin Kaepernick mug. Uh, basically, it looks like it's a pro Colin Kaepernick mug. But instead, it says, always remember, before Colin Kaepernick took a knee, he lost his job to Blaine Gabbert. Now, as someone who boycotts the NFL, I'm not sure who Blaine Gabbert is, but we'll get back to you with that information. Uh, here's the thing. Here's what happened. Okay. There's a festival in England, the Glastonbury Festival, big music festival, where everyone, of course, gets hammered and does drugs all the time. Nearby, there's a river that passes through, a nice serene river that is now filled with 
Well, of course, everyone's peeing in the river, so they're waste. But included in that waste is so much cocaine and MDMA that it's screwing with the local eel population. Now, I don't know if they hallucinated the eels or what, but I will say, did you even go to eel college? Can you just not take the party? Stupid, pathetic nerd eels.